This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 20th. Today, preparing to vote in November, a new challenge for COVID testing, and a fresh outbreak in South Korea. As state election officials are getting ready for November, many people are wondering what voting will look like in the middle of a pandemic. Part of that is figuring out how to make polling places more conducive to social distancing. But part of that is also mail-in voting on a massive scale. You know, voting by mail, it seems like, oh, you just drop a ballot in a uh, an envelope and there you go. But it's a really complicated process. It's a whole different type of voting. Joe Marks covers election security for The Post. And for states that aren't used to doing this, they're going to have to buy new machines to sort and send this mail. They're going to have to have big contracts with printers who are going to produce oversized envelopes for ballots to go into and extra secrecy envelopes that the ballot inside the envelope goes into to ensure that it's actually a secret ballot. They're going to have to do a whole bunch of work to figure out where people are and how to get these ballots to them. They're going to have to have a process in place for people to register to vote online uh, who maybe weren't registered to vote already and to share their addresses. All of that's going to be very complicated, and that's going to be a multi-multi-month process at the very best. It's not something that you can kind of pivot to do in a couple of weeks. What is considered the best practices here? Like in an ideal world, would we be having all 50 states doing extensive or almost exclusive voting by mail? Or is the push more to just try to make polling places safer and more socially distanced with barriers and lots of plexiglass? It depends on the state and it depends on what the pandemic looks like then. Definitely almost every state is expecting to have far more voting by mail than they're used to having. In some cases, there are states that are basically 100 percent now that are going to stay at 100 percent. Other states are at, you know, 30 to 40 percent and they might go up to 60 percent. And there are a lot of states that are really, you know, three to four to five percent voting by mail. They're going to have way more. But the capacity of those states to get up to the 50 or 60 or even and 70% range is going to be very difficult just because of all of the infrastructure that they need. In terms of what you can do in a polling place, you know, ideally, if the pandemic is still moving really strongly then and a real concern then, you know, you want to reduce the number of people who are going into a live polling place so that you can effectively social distance, so that you can keep people safe. But you do have to have them open, in some cases, just for people who prefer to vote in person. But there are also groups, especially certain voters with disabilities, for whom it's just much easier to vote in person than to vote by mail. So when Congress passed this huge coronavirus stimulus package back in March, I remember that it had money in it to help states start preparing their election systems to adapt to the pandemic. Where has that money been going and how is it being used? 
Yes, the bill had 400 million for states to do that. At this point, every state has said how much of that they're going to accept because there was a 20% match requirement that was going to be tough for some states to find in their budgets because they're all scrambling to deal with the virus as well. Mostly they're spending it on getting the equipment they need for voting by mail, finding new poll workers, because a lot of poll workers typically are elderly, putting protective equipment in place, getting hand sanitizer and cleaning supplies and people to clean these locations and all of the things that, you know, all these businesses are talking about doing to reopen. They sort of have to do that multiple times over for each of these polling sites. Is there a concern that not all states are doing enough generally and specifically doing enough with this money to try to get prepared in a really tight time window? There probably will be, but we just don't know that yet because this money has just gone out, you know, at the best case scenario in the last couple of weeks. It's really tough to start spending it that quickly. So what we do know is that Every state, with only two exceptions, has accepted basically all of the money that they have available to them. Oklahoma and Utah have only accepted part of the money. In the case of Utah, they vote almost entirely by mail anyway. So it makes sense that they may not need all of this money. And what we also know is that the experts who've looked at this from the Brennan Center for Justice, And from some other organizations say $400 million is nowhere near enough. Their estimates say around $2 billion is really what's needed. But I I mean, $2 billion is a lot of money. Is, Is our states prepared to foot the rest of that bill? Or are we facing a world in which there's just not enough money to do the things that need to get done to have safe and still comprehensive elections? We're facing a world where there is not enough money to do all the things that the experts say we ought to be doing. And that's honestly been true since about 2016, when states, after Russian interference in the 2016 election, started trying to really revamp their systems to be better secured against hacking. It's been a constant fight for money ever since then, and they've never really had quite as much as the experts say they need. And that kind of dovetails with another question, which is this question of election security and concerns about election interference. If we are still worried from the 2016 experience that there are actors out there that would want to do things that would make people question the legitimacy of our election system, how do those concerns connect with what election officials are facing right now in terms of just trying to get people safe access to voting? They connect in a whole bunch of ways. The good news is that of all the ways you can vote, voting by mail is one of the most secure against hacking because it's a piece of paper and it's very difficult to hack a piece of paper. So the more people are voting by mail, that generally reduces your concerns about hacking rather than increasing it. However, there's just going to be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety surrounding this election no matter what. There are going to be questions about Who's voting by mail? Who has access to the ballot? And all of those are things that Russia and other adversaries can exploit through disinformation campaigns to reduce our faith in the democratic process and our belief in the integrity of the election. And if they can do that, then that's almost as good as actually disrupting it. 
I think one of the things that we've started to see even more over the past few years is how partisan voting itself can be. You would think that it's kind of an apolitical thing and, and something that's just guaranteed in the Constitution for everyone, that, but that there are a lot of partisan fights over how people should be able to vote and, and what are the ways that we actually conduct elections. How are we seeing partisanship playing out in this question of how to hold elections in a pandemic? I think that's been really surprising. And it goes back to the fight over election security that started in 2016. Since 2016, really 2018, there's been a fight between Democrats who want to put a lot of money into election security at the federal level. And they also want to impose mandates on states that say you have to follow these best practices to secure your election. You have to have paper ballots. You have to audit the elections. You have to do cybersecurity penetration testing to ensure that Russian hackers and no one else can get in. And Republicans who say, we don't want to impose any of that on you. It's it's states' responsibility to run their elections. That's in the Constitution. Maybe we'll give you some money, but that's it. And even the money has been a little bit tough. Right now, Democrats in their first coronavirus stimulus bill asked for $4 billion, only got $400 million. They're asking for the rest of it, $3.6 billion in this upcoming stimulus bill that we're talking about. Unclear how much of that they're going to get. They're also asking for very specific mandates. They want everyone to be able to vote by mail without an excuse forevermore in every election in the country from any state who takes this money. They want to have guaranteed 15 days of early voting and a number of other things that they think will make elections more secure that Republicans say are Democratic wish list items that are meant to undermine states' control of elections. Is there a general sense of like who, for which party it would be more advantageous to have widespread voting by mail in November? It's really, really not clear, which is one of the things that's very interesting about this. You know, the person who has been most critical of voting by mail is President Trump, who has claimed without evidence that it leads to widespread fraud. He said that expanding voting by mail would deliver elections to Democrats. And this is all, by the way, despite the fact that the president himself voted by mail in the most recent Florida primary. You know, one of the groups that's most likely to vote by mail is elderly people who tend to vote more Republican than Democratic. One of the groups that's least likely to vote by mail is African-Americans who tend to have a historic distrust of voting by mail and want to show up at a, at a polling place, and they tend to vote Democratic rather than Republican. So it's really up in the air whether voting by mail would be meaningfully beneficial for either party over another. Absolutely. So if we get closer to the election and a lot of states are struggling to get together how they're going to do widespread voting by mail, then what happens? What happens if states just kind of run out of time before they are able to make an actual plan that they can execute? It's going to be very complicated and it's going to be very messy. One of the really concerning scenarios is you get to end up with a situation like the Wisconsin primary, which happened at the last minute in which people didn't get mail-in ballots that they had requested because they didn't arrive in time. They either didn't vote or they had to show up and risk their health to vote. And I think we all saw those those images of blocks, long lines, people social distancing, risking their health to vote. And as of the last count, there are at least 50 cases of coronavirus that have been linked to people who showed up with the Wisconsin primary. So that that could be one of the worst case scenarios. 
Joe Marks is a reporter for The Post and the author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter. hearing for a long time that states have lacked the materials to do enough testing. And what we found out is there's a new problem that's emerged now that states are better prepared to do testing, which is getting people to show up and take a test. This is happening in a number of areas, and there are different factors that contribute to it. But what we're seeing is that there are plenty of instances where states are not using their full capacity for testing for COVID-19 every day. I'm Juliet Eilprin. I'm a senior national affairs correspondent with The Washington Post. So this isn't a case where the tests are being underutilized in places that don't have a big coronavirus problem. Like these are places where people need to be tested, but that they're just not showing up. It depends on what state you're talking about. Massachusetts is more of a hot spot than Utah is. So, you know, there is some variation. But without question, even in hard hit places, there are instances of not as much demand as they would anticipate. And so you even have governors at times appealing to their constituents. Testing, testing, one, two, three. This is Governor Gary Herbert. Let's stay safe and get Utah back to work. Telling them they should come out and get tested. I'm going to show you how fast and easy it is to take a test and demonstrate why there should be no reluctance So why aren't people showing up? There are really a number of factors that are playing into it. One, certainly, is that many people might be confused about what are the current guidelines for who qualifies for a test. In the early days of the outbreak, People were very clear that there weren't enough tests to go around, and the people who needed to be tested were those who were most vulnerable, meaning they were older or had underlying conditions and had very significant symptoms of the coronavirus. Now, over time, they're telling folks, some of whom might not even have symptoms to get tested, especially if you're on the front line working in a grocery store, delivering mail, things like that. And in some instances, This is not penetrated. Frankly, I totally understand that because I feel like that's the message that I heard and that I had continued to think was the case, that you only get a test if you're sick, if you have symptoms, if you think you might need to go to the hospital, that that there's no point in wasting a test on yourself if you don't have any symptoms or if you're not sort of in any kind of grave situation or you're not a, a healthcare worker or an essential worker. And so you're saying that that has changed, but people haven't heard the message. Absolutely. Now, there are other factors that are also playing into this. There are things like people have heard about the false negative rates with a number of these tests, and so they don't trust the tests or they don't trust the government officials that are administering the tests, or they think that it's going to cost too much, even though by law, no American should have to pay for a COVID-19 test. You know, so there, there are a number of different factors that play into this, but it's completely reasonable that people, after hearing for a long time that they There there weren't enough tests and they shouldn't get it unless it was urgent that now the rules have changed. That's something that often takes time 
to shift, especially when you have 50 different states pursuing different strategies and you don't always have the clearest messages coming out of the White House. I also imagine that there must be concerns about safety, right? I, I mean, I, I had a friend who believes that he had COVID in he's in New York and he talked to his doctor and his doctor confirmed like, oh, yeah, you probably definitely have COVID. But it's not worth the risk of you leaving your apartment to get tested when you could potentially infect someone else. And I think that people are also worried about showing up to testing sites and theoretically being in proximity to someone who could be infected and then getting sick that way. That's absolutely one of the other reasons people don't want to come out. Obviously, people don't want to go to the doctor's office to get a referral or to actually go to one of these testing sites if they're worried that they might actually get COVID-19 as a result. And so who actually is supposed to get a test at this point? Like, am, am I supposed to be tested if I haven't had any symptoms? I mean, I go to the grocery store, I walk outside sometimes and try to keep my distance from people, but I could theoretically have been infected and nobody knows for sure. So am I a person who should be getting a test? Not necessarily, especially if, for example, you're working remotely and so you're not going to be interacting with so many people, aside from going out occasionally to the grocery store, they still want, you know, many of the tests to be for people who might be without symptoms, but are in a position that they are interacting more frequently with those in the outside world. So how are state officials trying to get more people to show up and take advantage of these tests that are available? They're different strategies. So, for example, in California, where they feel like they haven't had as many testing sites targeting communities of color and rural communities, they're really trying to expand in those areas. In Mississippi, they've started doing elective surgeries again, and they're testing everybody who comes in for an elective surgery. That way you're getting a broader swath of the state's population, but you're not making people go out of their way for it. In Utah, they have launched an app where you can kind of, you know, register online. And in that context, they've even given scripts to talk show radio hosts to try to get them to, to get out the word. They've posted billboards. These are all efforts they've made to try to encourage Utahns to get tested. And do we know how many people have actually been tested for coronavirus so far in total and how that compares to our current national capacity for testing? Well, we're testing about 330,000 people a day now. We've basically doubled the number of, of Americans tested each day compared to a month ago. But that is just a fraction of the capacity that we technically have to test. Uh, you know, it's it's hard because one of the things that's interesting is we went to every state in the country in Washington, D.C. and asked them for what their capacity was to process tests. And frankly, many of them couldn't give us an answer. They didn't even know their own capacity. But when you look at an analysis the White House did based on the information they got from manufacturers of the machines that process these tests, it's clear that we easily could be at 400,000 tests a day and frankly, much higher if you take into account, you know, that that was kind of the minimum estimate. And with many of these states, they can be, you know, testing much, much more than that. And theoretically, if the country is going to start or continue to reopen safely, I would imagine that getting close to that capacity, that max capacity for testing would be a critical part of being able to do that without having a, a second resurgence of coronavirus. 
Right. So for example, just last week, a group of Harvard researchers estimated that we should be testing at roughly triple the rate that we're testing right now. We should be doing something like 900,000 tests a day, which would mean that about 8% of the population would be tested each month. And if you do that, the, the thinking is you would be able to identify enough folks who have the infection, are carrying it, and you could trace their contacts and isolate people in a way that could contain future outbreaks. What are the other limiting factors for testing? We still have a shortage of supplies in many places. And so it's important not to minimize that. There there are plenty of states, as I mentioned, for example, California Governor Gavin Newsom said recently, you know, they're doing fewer than 40,000 tests a day. They could be doing up to 100,000 tests. And that's largely constrained by the lack of many of these testing materials folks have heard about, including the specialized nasal swabs, the reagents, the chemicals that help extract the genetic material, things like that, even the vials that transport these samples. So there's a shortage of that. There's a shortage of the protective equipment. Medical workers need to administer these tests safely. So that's part of it. But there are just so many different factors. It was really interesting hearing from folks across the country that, you know, there's a mobile unit in Texas that barely attracted any patients. And there's a thought that politicians in the area were not incredibly enthusiastic about testing, and that might have intimidated and, or you know, convinced some folks they didn't need the test. So the fact that you have this situation where at first there weren't enough tests available and people couldn't get access to tests, and now there are tests available, but people either don't know that they're there or don't want to take advantage of them. What do you think that says for the long term? I think it points to real problems in terms of how skeptical many Americans are of the government's ability to meet this moment. When we got feedback from readers, what I've been really struck by is how angry and confused many of them are. Folks were relating stories about calling up a testing site and being told they didn't qualify or it would cost a lot of money that they don't have because they're laid off from their job right now. And time and time again, I just was hearing personal appeals from individuals who wanted to know whether they might have COVID-19, but felt like there wasn't a clear way to get a test. And I think when you have this moment, when we have more resources for folks to be tested, that really speaks to the predicament we're in. Juliet Eilprin is a national reporter for The Post. On Tuesday, the governor of Maryland announced that the state is relaxing criteria for who can get tested. Now they're expanding access to people that may have been exposed to COVID, even if they don't have any symptoms. Other states are also relaxing their testing criteria. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. 
We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. And now, one more thing. A few weeks ago, South Korea experienced its second outbreak since the coronavirus pandemic hit. South Korea reported the first local infection in four days in a guy who's 29 years old, who actually went clubbing in trendy Itaewon district. Since his case was reported, so far, uh, over a hundred coronavirus cases are linked to the outbreak at the Itaewon district. That's Minju Kim. She covers South Korea for The Post. South Korea actually conducts a very rigorous contact tracing. And all the pre-quarantine movements of confirmed patients gets tracked and gets published online for the public to see and so that they can identify whether they cross path with a virus carrier. And because this 29-year-old man went to gay bars and clubs, people started pointing fingers at the places that he's been. These clubs and bars in Itaewon are not usually in the public view, and people who visited these places would want to hide it because homosexuality is still stigmatized in South Korea. The views on sexual minorities have improved over the recent years, but there are no prominent openly gay politicians or businessmen. Um, some celebrities have come out as gay, but in like the mainstream politics or business world, homosexuality is like very invisible still. So people who visited these clubs, Christianity-linked media in South Korea, are pointing fingers at the club goers as spreading the virus and aggravating the outbreak more because they are hiding the fact that they visited these places and wouldn't come out and get tested for the coronavirus. Minju Kim says the local government's response has helped LGBTQ Koreans feel a little bit more assured, at least for now. So Seoul mayor actually said Seoul City will set up anonymous testing for those who have concerns about getting their personal identity revealed in the course of getting tested for the coronavirus. Minju Kim covers South Korea for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind, or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.